Hello, I am Katerina Sliva. I am a partner at Dentons in the Real Estate Group. I am also the head of our Land Use Planning, Municipal and Development Law Group. I help our developer and landowner clients secure zoning and other development approvals for their projects. I am the lead of our Canada Smart Cities Think Tank. I am also your host for the Smart Cities Chat Podcast Series, brought to you by Dentons. This podcast series covers a broad range of topics within the Smart Cities space. Everything from drones, communication, 5G, privacy and related issues, P3s, transportation and smart mobility, sustainable, smart communities, and much, much more. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There you can access our episodes as well as an episode description for each topic and information on our speakers. And now over to our podcast. We have Kirsten Thompson speaking with Jody Becker, Chief Strategy Officer and EVP Infrastructure Services and Technology at Ellis Dawn. Um, and with Carl Schrober, a senior associate in our privacy and data security advertising and transformative technologies and data strategy group. Uh, Kirsten is a partner in our corporate group in Toronto and is the national lead of the transformative technologies and data strategy group. She is also a key member of the privacy and cybersecurity group. She, is, she has both an advisory and an advocacy practice and provides privacy, data security, and data management advice to clients in a wide variety of industries. Kirsten's practice has a particular concentration in data-driven industries and disruptive technologies, and she is a leading practitioner in areas such as fintech, including blockchain and smart contracts, digital identity, vehicle, telematics, and connected infrastructure big data, data analytics, applications, and enterprise data strategy. Carl advises on all matters related to privacy law and data governance in the emerging technology sphere, including wearable devices, smart homes, connected and autonomous vehicles, smart cities, and the internet of things. Kirsten and Carl, over to you to introduce Jody and get us started. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kat. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on introductions because you just heard a lot about Carl and myself, but I am going to turn it over to Jody to introduce herself. Hi, good afternoon. I guess it is now. Um, thanks very much, uh, Kirsten and Carl, for inviting me to speak today. Um, my role here at Ellis Dawn covers a few things. Um, as uh, the EVP of Infrastructure Services and Technology, I oversee uh, a number of our services within a construction company that include our facilities management uh, team. We oversee um, both vertical and horizontal infrastructure, including hospitals, courthouses, and LRTs, uh, as well as our particularly important for today's discussion, I think, is our energy and digital service team, which is our really uh, our, our team focused around uh, intelligent infrastructure and smart cities, as well as our project management and advisory teams in Canada and internationally, and our sustainability team. So thanks very much for Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to this uh, discussion. It's always insightful when we get an opportunity to uh, speak with you. Um, our last opportunity to speak with you was about a year ago on a similar panel, and I was just wondering what developments have occurred in the smart city space uh, since you last spoke with us. 
Gosh, everything in the last year, hasn't it? Um, everything I think that we do these days involves tech, whether it's this type of a webinar, um, you know, whether we're working from home, whether we are having Zoom beers with friends, whether we are, you know, ordering our groceries online or or even doing a virtual uh, yoga session these days. All everything is involving tech now that we are living in a COVID environment. Um, so I think from a business perspective, we've seen that uh, explosion of um, the need around the need for connectivity and and um, you know interoperability between systems in our infrastructure as well. Um, you know, at, over the last number of months. Uh, I would say on the energy and digital services side, our pursuits and the sort of business development side of the business has tripled. Um, and again, I think that's really as a result of what we're seeing. We're also seeing that where uh, smart cities and intelligent infrastructure was, was uh, nice to have uh, pre-COVID, it's now becoming really essential for everything we do. So we see, um, even in, in the purpose-built rental residential environment, uh, the demand for things like fiber to the suites in order to enable um, all of the technology that people will have within those spaces, um, you know, that's a, a new demand that we would not have seen uh, over the past number of years. I think also as it relates to how we are managing the infrastructure that we manage on our facilities and, and infrastructure side of things, um, we are looking at new ways to um, drive efficiencies out of those assets. And that we are utilizing technology in a number of different ways in order to do that. So now we are working with centralized management platforms that are um, really visual depictions of everything that's happening within a building. What we're really trying to do through the visual depictions is listen to what the building is telling us or listen to what the infrastructure is telling us so that we can not only identify where we are being inefficient or where we are utilizing too much energy or where a particular piece of mechanical equipment is malfunctioning. We can identify it visually, we can diagnose it, and in some cases, we can um, automatically um, fix the problem through those types of, of um, um, platforms. We're also found, we've also found over the last uh, number of months that understanding what is happening on our construction sites and having access to the data around what's happening on our construction sites is of vital importance. So while we are all back to work on our construction sites, the way in which we work has dramatically changed. And we have to maintain physical distancing on sites. We have to limit the number of people that are in our hoists. And so data around the number of people that are on site, the people that are coming in contact with each other, um, and the productivity levels that are being impacted, all is being managed and, and monitored through the use of technology so that when, we, when it comes time to um, you know, reconcile the impacts of COVID with our clients, we have the data accessible to us. Everything has changed in a year. <laughs> <laughs> So that was kind of a leading question. I maybe I should have scoped it a little narrowly. 
Um, that's all very interesting. Uh, so I assume then that there's an increased demand for these technologies and all this data. And we heard on the previous panel, my colleague Paniota speaking about the ways to protect that data. But what are you seeing on the ground on projects? Like, uh, how do you sort out who has the rights to which data? Are <laughs> Uh, in terms of in terms of ownership of data, it's it's certainly a hot topic issue, and um, you know, as uh, as Ellis Dawn, we're very conscious of our own data and the protection of our own data. It's very important to us, and similarly, it's very important to us to protect the data of our clients. But it does uh, become uh, a, a bit more complicated when when you look at certain types of projects. For example, we have a number of P3 hospitals that we operate. And when we construct those hospitals, we often do so with uh, two networks. We'll run an entire network through uh, the hospital that will manage and operate the asset. And we run a separate network through the hospital that will be used for the hospital's uh, specific needs, in term including um, you know, healthcare information, that kind of thing. We will not touch that kind of uh, network, and, and that remains completely proprietary to the hospital. And we wouldn't have any access over that. In terms of the data around the operation of the building, however, that's where it can become a bit gray. Our uh, obviously the data itself, um, you know, is is proprietary to the the hospital. It um, you know it is the owner of the building. It, it, it intrinsically owns the. The data around it. However, it is very important for us to manage and utilize that data in order to uh, make sure that the building is running efficiently and properly and in accordance with our performance obligations under that uh, kind of a project model. So we have to we have to work together on it, but certainly there is um, you know there is crossover on how that data is utilized. Carl, what about from your perspective? Um, uh, you you look at the paperwork behind all of this in the law. Do you see more contractual clauses addressing data? And what, what are the types of issues that are arising from where you sit? Sure. Um, so certainly seen more and more contracts involving provisions relating to data and if relevant, you know, personal information, um, including arrangements where we would never have seen them before. Practice is certainly moving in the right direction. However, it's still not universal practice. Um, we're also, of course, seeing more complex arrangements, which equally creates uh, more complex and careful thought around what an appropriate data provision or privacy provisions should be. Um, you know, it's been mentioned a few times, including in the last last segment or presentation. Um, you know, we're seeing issues around data ownership. Everyone wants to own the data. And depending on the arrangement, you know, this may not be possible. Um, so the parties involved will want to think about, you know, what is an appropriate mechanism or mechanisms in, that would work for, for them, um, you know, for example, such as a perpetual license. And if you're worried about your competitors, then you may want to consider sort of perhaps provisions or restrictions around um, the data itself. Um, this is, you know, in particular importance if you say have identified a revenue stream for this data. Which is obviously core to your to your to your need as a business. Um, we're still seeing quite a few sort of competing regimes or perhaps competing uses of data. 
um, this is clearly seen in sort of a, a P3 model. So the, the public sector entity is you know, generally limited by its own statute of how it can use the information generally. And generally that's just sort of to provide the public service. Um, on the private sector side, of course, you know, whether it's a tech company or a developer, um, it'll likely have its own interests in the information and what it wants to do with it, uh, usually perhaps for a com secondary commercial purpose. Um, so depending on these sort of competing uh, regimes and competing uh, data uses, this will certainly want to be articulated appropriately in uh, your arrangements. Um, you might also have, and I've seen this a few times, uh, competing interests in the event of, say, a data breach, in particular if there's a breach of personal information. So we've seen issues where um, want, uh, two or more organizations are collaborating in some form, whether that's a partnership agreement or a network agreement or some other type of contract, but the arrangement doesn't have any clear language about who has responsibility to manage the data breach. And if we're dealing with, say, personal information in those circumstances, um, whether that breach triggers privacy laws. And so the parties that are involved might disagree on the severity of the breach and whether you need to leave triggered reporting obligations to privacy commissioner or to notify affected individuals. Um, so we might have some quite a conflict in that case. Um, so parties who may fall into the sort of area may want to consider language that clearly defines who has the decision-making power. Um, and of course, define what a breach means, you know, whether the breach was caused by party A, caused by party B, by an unknown um, malicious actor, by, you know, a, constellation of things, um, those, those things will want to be sorted out so that in the event of such an incident, um, you're not sort of dealing with this kind of vagueness in your arrangement. That's very helpful. Uh, I assume that covers off the confidentiality and non-personal information as well as personal information. You can put those contractual provisions in place? Absolutely, yeah. Now, we've, we've talked a bit about the participants in the smart city ecosystem. But uh, Jody, what about Elston itself? What sort of things are you doing yourself with the data? Unmute myself there. Uh, it's a good question with a complicated answer, I think, as with many industries and many companies, um, you know, where we are very uh, focused on protecting our data, very focused on utilizing our data in effective ways, as Carl just said. It's, there is a commercial intent behind what we are doing. But it, within the construction industry, we are quite often, I would say, criticized for two things. There are efficiency and transparency. And so from an Ellis Dawn point of view, uh, we are focused on utilizing the data in effective ways that will make us both more efficient and more transparent uh, to our clients and to our subcontractors. So we, while we very much believe that controlling our own data means controlling our own destiny and not being beholden to other providers of platforms out there that, that may be also looking to utilize our data to advance their own commercial purposes, um, we also think it's really important to make that data available in effective ways so that we can be more transparent through the kind of typical construction pyramid or even through the operations process. So one of the, one of the more interesting things that we're doing right now um, is we've created a product together with some industry partners that is focused around gathering and collating information about 
uh, our subcontractors, not just for Ellis Dawn, uh, but for the industry as a whole. So we've created a platform whereby subcontractors will submit their information as they would do in the normal course to any uh, contractor, general contractor. They would provide information around uh, their financial health. They would provide health and safety information. They might provide information around uh, insurance and bonding. And typically they would have to do that for every uh, contractor in the industry several times through, throughout the year in order to be qualified for projects. We've created a platform uh, together with our industry partners uh, that allows the subcontracting market to submit that information in a secure and protected way and makes it available to the subscribers of that platform so that uh, it's readily available. They don't have to go through that process over and over again. And it provides anonymized data about their competitors as well. So they have the ability to see uh, you know, how they're faring against um, other market players uh, from the, the point of view of this kind of anonymized rating system. So again, that's in an effort to provide transparency across across the industry, um, work with our industry partners, um, and really utilize that data to, to drive more efficient projects. Thanks. Uh, we've mostly been talking about the uses of data in the commercial and commercial applications, but uh, smart residential is increasingly becoming a thing. Um, uh, typically, uh, these are condo developments uh, or similarly fully integrated condo and retail developments. Uh, uh, everything is voice activated, there's speakers embedded. Uh, I'm looking at Carl's uh, uh, condo right now to see if I can see any of the embedded smart technologies behind him. Um, uh, these types of buildings and services often use a, a lot of personal information. So uh, Carl, I wonder if you can comment, are the considerations different in residential builds? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're certainly seeing many residential projects that are advertising um, basically a smart condo or smart units, obviously, um, with these sort of integrated smart uh, devices. And this is well beyond sort of the, the smart appliances that we've sort of become used to now, or perhaps, um, you know, sort of these add-ons or promotional incentives, which are sort of, you know, with a purchase of a condo, you'll get, you know, this brand name speaker. Um, where it's you know clearly you're dealing with a third party brand uh, that you are will be installing sort of a third party branded speaker or other smart device. What we're seeing a lot more is actually more white labeled um, and seamlessly integrated smart devices. Um, you know smart integrated security functions, uh, smart locks where residents can just sort of walk in and walk out and unlock their their door and their their common stores um, delivery functions and. Uh, delivery uh, boxes, um, infotainment systems, or as you mentioned, voice activated functions. Most of these are generally in the units themselves and sort of the, you know, the space themselves is sort of squarely within that person's living space, but some of them are also integrated into the common spaces or the common shared ownership of the building itself. So if we sort of just assume that these are the, in the case of the white labeled ones, where you're not quite clear um, you know, who is providing this, this smart device or this digital service, um, you know, there's certain questions that come up about uh, who is collecting the personal information and who is sort of accountable for this personal information. Um, is the information being used squarely to provide uh, some kind of a 
a utility service um, or is it actually some kind of commercial uh, interaction that's, that's going on as well? Um, there could be lots of players involved. There could be the, the property manager and the board. Um, uh, there could be sort of the, the third party supplier who created this technology or is providing the service. Could be utility uh, or it could be sort of the developer's business management system that has sort of kind of retained some kind of control over the data networks and the systems over the building after they've sort of been sold off. Um, and we can imagine that from say a resident or an owner uh, perspective, um, you know, there's gonna be these questions about uh, what information am I giving to, how it's gonna be used, if it's gonna be transferred or disclosed to someone else. Um, these are certainly questions that a privacy commissioner would be certainly interested in, in the coming uh, time as a sort of a developing area, especially if there's sort of an information exchange for commercial activity. Um, from the sort of business perspective, of course, you know, the involved parties, we're gonna to wanna to ensure that there's some kind of papered uh, data transfer arrangement, you know, for example, between the property managers and suppliers and utilities, the telcos or whoever perhaps involved and sort of aligning sort of who has responsibility with obtaining consent and how would you even perhaps obtain that in sort of the, the scope of these integrated systems? Uh, who has responsibility and accountability um, for this information and, you know, when things go wrong, you know, who, who has also responsibility for that. So there's a lot of questions sort of that come up with this and, and, and currently our sort of privacy regime is very consent focused, but we can imagine a lot of these tools may not be um, easily sort of integrated or manageable or even consider this sort of consent based regime. Um, and I would have to, I would be remiss if I wouldn't say that these questions that we're sort of considering um, for the session in particular when we're talking about sort of personal information that's collected in the course of a commercial activity, which could certainly involve some of these, these smart integrated devices. These questions are gonna be, um, so while you're thinking of these questions now, you'll also wanna think down the road and down the future because currently uh, Canada's private sector privacy laws are completely being overhauled. Um, right, Quebec, as many of you already know, has already issued its Bill 64. Um, we are expecting a draft of the modernized federal uh, personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, or, or PIPEDA. We're also expecting changes from BC and Alberta, um, and Ontario is even um, in the middle of a consultation to determine whether they should be issuing it, their own sort of private sector privacy laws. So these, these questions around the technology that are being brought into uh, these residential projects, the information collected, and, and whether consent is, is a cornerstone of, of uh, the parties being able to use this information, and are, whether they're being used for reasonable um, these are certainly important questions to ask, but um, parties involved will also want to think down the road and down the future uh, because these laws will be quite different and resemble quite a bit to the GDPR in Europe uh, as, as early as some of the next year uh, and into 2022. Thanks, Carl. It's, it's, uh, especially now, future-proofing is definitely a good idea when you're considering uh, you know, projects that may be uh, a hole in the ground right now. Uh, but two years from now, we're going to be fully built and be under a completely different privacy regime. Uh, Carl, I, I just want to ambush you with a question that we didn't prepare. Uh, Carl loves this. Um, what about transfers of personal information across borders? This question comes up all the time. Can you do it? Is it allowed in Canada? Uh, sure. Are you thinking about outside of Canada in particular? Yeah, transfers across uh, into the U.S. typically. Sure. So if we're talking about 
Um, let's talk about two buckets first. So the first bucket, let's talk about private sector uh, organizations. Uh, so we're talking about those who may be subject to, to PIPA or one of our provincial statutes. Um, currently, there's nothing that suggests that information can, cannot leave um, Canada. Um, certain privacy commissioners have even come out and stated that there's nothing in statutes that prohibit the transfer of information, let's say, going to the United States. The question is not so much where uh, the information is, but whether the organization that collected the information in Canada and is perhaps transferring it or you know, transferring to a service provider that might be sitting in the United States has entered into sort of a contractual arrangement with that provider and um, you know, has provided adequate provisions in that agreement to ensure that the information remains as safe as if it had never left Canada. So you can think of very typical provisions um, uh, around sort of insurance security and restrictions on use, um, breach provisions, um, information uh, provisions on restricting subcontractors and how they can use it, uh, retention and destruction. Um, so a lot of the standard provisions you might see. So there's certainly nothing um, outright that prohibits it, but uh, it could be, it's certainly something to consider. On the other bucket that might be a play and important to some of our listeners is those who may be working with uh, a public entity. Uh, in particular, in British Columbia and Nova Scotia, where public sector entities say if uh, you're a private uh, company and you would be processing information on behalf of, say, um, uh, a provincial public body in BC, there are restrictions on information leaving uh, Canada uh, that are completely prohibited. Um, so you could be quite restricted from, uh, if you were to engage with those public entities, you could be facing uh, restrictions on, on having information stored outside of Canada and would have to make arrangements to ensure that the information is localized in Canada. Thanks, Carl. Um, we're just coming up on time. Uh, Jody, I'll give you the last word. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, any insights you'd like to provide before we do this again next year and everything has changed again? <laughs> I don't think it's going to change back, I guess. Uh, you know, what what you, you said about uh, the thought that needs to go into planning a project now for uh, for what the future will look like, whether it's from a legal perspective or whether from a, from a utilization perspective, that future proofing and pre-planning uh, of, the, of the development of any asset right now is vital. We have to think about uh, not only, you know, what are we using it, what are we using technology for today, but what will it be used for for many, many years to come. And what we've found is that that thinking is not yet finding its way into the you know the documents that are handed over to us quite often to look at and and price plan and build um, it's it's taking some effort throughout the process and we might have a project that is planned five years in advance of of shovels even hitting the ground and it may take another four years to build that project by the time you've gone through that process, the technology, as we've seen, has radically changed. So we need to develop models and thinking uh, that is as dynamic as the technology that is fueling them. So I'll leave it at that. Yes, thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take and refrain from taking action based on its contents. 
please see dentons.com for legal notices. Speakers from this podcast episode and any other professional in our group will be pleased to speak with you on today's topic or any other topic related to smart cities. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our Smart Cities Chat podcast series. Thank you.